Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalatal, Senior Director of the International Forum. New information technologies are bringing decidedly mixed results for democracy around the world. They're empowering civil society in a number of ways, but also creating new opportunities for authoritarian regimes to monitor and surveil populations and manipulate public discourse. Repressive regimes are harnessing technology to project influence abroad, while at the same time propagating new forms of technology corrosive to democratic freedom worldwide. The dual trends of digital authoritarianism and disinformation present challenges to the health of democracy at both the global and local levels, yet both phenomena have been difficult to track and convey in ways that make clear to audiences the scale and severity of the problem. This is in part because different sets of topical and regional or country-level expertise may be required to connect the dots between technologies and disinformation narratives from distinct settings. One media outlet called Coda Story is taking an innovative approach that helps audiences contextualize disinformation and specific authoritarian applications of technology. We are very pleased to welcome Coda Story's co-founder and editor-in-chief, Natalia Antalava, for today's discussion on authoritarian technology and disinformation. Natalia, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And Natalia, as as Shanti alluded to, you've forged this initiative, which is really pretty unusual in terms of getting at some of these very complex, multidimensional challenges that have emerged. Could you say a word about how Coda Story took shape and what your ideas for approaching these problems uh, were when you started at it? Sure. Actually, when we first started out, we didn't necessarily know what topics or what crisis a coda would be covering. What we did know, however, was that there was a gap in the media market in terms of outlets and platforms that could provide continuity and context to this major events that are shaping our societies. As someone who comes from the news background, I worked for the BBC as a foreign correspondent for many years. My co-founder, Elan Greenberg, was with major American papers, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. You know, we both sort of tried to really think very hard, how can we create a platform that steers journalism away from the noise, from helicopter in, from providing really incremental pieces of information on these big stories. And, you know, we had to start with something and kind of the the very beginning of Coda, the first crisis that we covered with the LGBTQ crisis in the former Soviet Union. And we were trying to answer the question, why? You know, not necessarily what was happening, because the mainstream media did a good job establishing that gay men and women in Russia were being prosecuted. But no one had answered why this was happening. And as we started digging into the whys and kind of the the themes behind this phenomena, a theme, the major theme that emerged from it was the disinformation and the information war and the kind of using the LGBTQ community as kind of weaponizing it uh, against the liberal democracy in the West and so on. And that coverage is span out into disinformation coverage. So we started a disinformation channel looking at 
disinformation campaigns and how they're used. And again, sort of trying to track trends, understand themes that are running through it. That led us to starting a channel focusing on authoritarian tech. So in a way, all topics of our coverage are linked to each other. They are part of that context and continuity by adding this issues. We try to, you know, add the context. And in a way, uh, these days, it's hard to look on news sites, whether online or if you open up the paper and not find some bits and pieces of issues related to disinformation or authoritarian tech in one form or another. But it tends to be piecemeal. And maybe that's just a reflection of the way news cycles have evolved and the way the news business has evolved. So you see yourself, in essence, providing more grounding on these issues so people can have more depth in their understanding of them. Absolutely. Again, you know, I think when we were perfecting the concept and figuring out how we would achieve, you know, the goals, and the goal was always that continuity and context. One of the challenges that we thought about is, you know, when you go on holiday during a major crisis, despite this wealth of information online, it's actually really hard to understand what happened in that space. So what we want to be is that place to go to in order to understand a crisis that we're covering. Like every piece of information that's published on Coda is part, is a piece of a puzzle in that big picture on on that issue. And, you know, the, the name actually spans from there too because it's a musical term and in music, of course, it's a passage uh, within a, a piece, within a composition that is distinctive and different from the rest of the piece of music and often brings it to a conclusion. So that's what we want to be in journalism. I think I've heard you say in other settings that breaking through noise is harder than breaking through censorship. And it strikes me that perhaps noise is the new censorship. And it seems pertinent to both countering disinformation itself, how do you break through noise rather than censorship, but it also pertains to the ways that CODA story itself is trying to get its stories out there and try to make its coverage of disinformation resonate in the wider media space. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why this is important and how you go about doing that. I do think breaking through noise is harder than breaking through censorship. And I always think of it in in a very sort of graphic way, uh, in a very visual way, because one of the reasons why I always wanted to be a journalist is kind of my childhood memories of my mother glued to the shortwave radio and the importance of that voice on the other side. And I grew up through kind of the the chaos of um, post-Soviet Georgia. You know, it's amazing to have seen the challenge of journalists trying to get the information out and, you know, feed it back. But I think that today, the challenge of breaking through the noise, and that's something that the authoritarian regimes have weaponized very successfully, where they very quickly understood that the way of replacing censorship was to generate more noise. And that's why there's such an onslaught of propaganda and disinformation that comes out and conflicting narratives that often don't make sense. And it's intentional that they don't make sense because, you know, they, the, the goal is to confuse. Um, and it's a it's an incredibly effective technique and one that, you know, the media in the West has not really learned to ignore because the news industry kind of also picks up the noise and becomes part of it. You know, one of the most striking examples of it was in Crimea. I was reporting from Crimea during the annexation and we we knew those soldiers on the ground were the Russian troops, but Putin was calling them 
little green man. And the media was almost tricked into the Kremlin's spin by the sheer fact of repeating what Putin was saying. You know, we contributed to that cycle of disinformation, right? So that leads me to how do you break through it? And I think um, a way of breaking through it is in some ways going back to the very basics, not repeating what politicians say, and instead sort of finding the human stories and investing time into some good old-fashioned on-the-ground reporting. Because, you know, what cuts through that kind of noise is a story of, I don't know, Sasha from Urupinsk, who has been sent to Crimea. So if you put a human face and a name and a real story to a, a myth that is being created and confusion that is being created, that can often be very, very powerful. I think you bring up an important point in that the modern news media has not yet figured out how to deal with disinformation in the course of reporting. And so it's often reported on in the traditional context of there's this one person saying this thing, there's another person saying the other thing, you decide. And what CODA story seems to have done that's distinct is to create a distinct disinformation beat so that it itself is covered as a story and that's a way that you get context around it. Maybe you could say a little bit about the ways in which you try to be proactive rather than reactive to the disinformation beat and, and maybe some innovations or ideas that you've worked with through that, that process. I think modern media has not just not figured out how to cover disinformation. I think the news industry is, in fact, a very active participant of disinformation. Uh, we are in these eco chambers and everyone's shouting and everyone's trying to outshout each other, you know, reporting on, um, you know, Vladimir Putin's press conference. It takes the resources and stuff away from reporting on the issues that matter. I think the problem is the very idea of 24-hour news cycle. You will end up generating a lot of noise because there are just simply not enough news to fill 24 hours in a day. Um, so we will be repeating ourselves and talking a lot and generating a lot of noise. It's almost inevitable. I mean, what we have with Coda is obviously the luxury of not following the news agenda. I have to say, as a journalist, you know, it actually takes a lot of discipline not to be reactive because that's the instinct as something happens you want to talk about it. That's why we love Twitter so much. So it's a constant kind of learning process of always trying to take a step back and think, okay, like, do we need to do this piece? And if we do this piece, what does it add to the story? And does it move the needle? Does it move the discussion? Does it move the conversation? Or is it just another story? And if we can see that actually the New York Times and Washington Post or someone else are doing it just fine and there is nothing that we're adding to the discourse and to the conversation, we're probably not going to do that story. But in terms of uh, covering you know, disinformation, you can't be proactive if you are in the reactive mode. So if you're constantly reacting to something that someone said, um, then that's it. Like you're actually following someone else's agenda. I think it's incredibly important for journalism today to try setting the agenda, to try influencing the conversation and setting the setting narratives rather than responding to someone else's. And I don't think it's actually as complicated as we make it out to be. And there are, you know, plenty of, of examples of 
you know, journalists doing doing it very well in individual papers. Organizationally, you know, when we decided to tackle this information because we felt it was a real massive society shaping crisis that was changing the world around us and had to be reported on. Having seen how this information affects real lives, causes real world violence, you know, I thought it was really important to figure out a way of telling that story in a way that journalists tell a story of any crisis. What do you do? You know, when you cover pollution, you don't sort of say, oh, the Minister of Environment uh, said this, but human rights groups say that. No, you actually go and you find a child who is suffering from a lung disease. You, you know, you find the victims and the perpetrators. You find human stories. You find the real effect on real life and you tell that story. And essentially, that's what we are trying to do with, uh, with the disinformation coverage as well. So, Natalia, you just described in such a compelling way the, the way in which this um, new disinformation environment came upon us. It's really not all that long ago. It's, it's now five-plus years ago, and you were there. I wonder if you could just give us a sense of what you're thinking about looking, say, five years forward, because in essence, the tools and the approaches that were used are adapting, and actually the pace of change is, is fantastically fast when we think about artificial intelligence and machine learning and its application in the the disinformation context. What, in your view, do we need to be doing in the journalistic sphere to make sure that we're prepared to help explain these stories so that citizens and democracies have the right context and to be informed on how to think about these issues? Well, I think the the first thing that we need to do is to be able to understand them ourselves. And I think that's something that journalists struggle to do. You know, that also applies to politicians. You know, the, one of the reasons why it's so hard to figure out how to regulate social media platforms is because we don't really understand them. And, tough um, for the judicial branch as it's well. It's tough for the judicial branch. It's tough for legislators. It's tough for everyone. And it's tough for journalists. So... I think sort of in very practical terms, I think it's raising generations of journalists who understand tech better. And I think what's really important as well is bringing more disciplines into the discourse, into the journalistic discourse as well, bringing in, you know, historical perspective, bringing in philosophical perspectives and ethical perspective, thinking harder about sort of the dual use of technology and how to cover dual use of technology, thinking harder about connecting the dots. I think that's really important. I think explaining to the community in the West how decisions made in Silicon Valley affect people in Burma or people in Bangladesh. I think all of these things are incredibly important. And I think journalism that connects these dots between the disciplines between the countries, between the complexities. I think that's the kind of journalism that we need. That's so important. And one of the things that CODA does really well is it takes things that could be very complex. And by putting that human dimension to it, it tells these stories very well. And so I really love reading through some of the stories on authoritarian technology, for instance, because they could be very abstract concepts. And yet, I think you've been able to, through various stories that you've run, you've actually been able to link it to an extremely human dimension. I was wondering if you could maybe just touch on one or two of those stories that may, in a, in a really 
colorful way and sometimes deeply touching way, they, they really do convey that there's a human cost to some of these, the application of this technology. Uh, a couple that come to mind, uh, we ran a story recently on the Uyghurs in uh, the re-education camps in Xinjiang. It's been in the news, and I think um, the scale of it is starting to uh, sink in. But uh, what we did, we didn't have access to China, to Xinjiang, but we spoke to a lot of people who are refugees in Turkey, mostly women. Uh, we focused the story focused on women. And then we tried to figure out like how to visualize this more effectively and what we did. And we generally work with artists a lot and do a lot of animations. And this was kind of a perfect example of where animation worked uh, really well. So um, we interviewed women who went through the camps and had some you know, very powerful, horrifying accounts of what happened to them. Um, and we had an artist work with the reporter and with the interviewees to reconstruct some of the images that they were describing. And we turned it into a video, into an animation. So that's one story of, you know, real life results of facial recognition technology, so much of which has actually come from the West and is now being abused terribly in China. Another example is we did a story about two young women who managed to escape Saudi Arabia uh, and abuse of their uh, male family members in, in Saudi. But in order to do that, they had to hack into an app that Google and Apple have refused to remove from their app stores. So again, that was like the real life, like their incredibly dramatic story really revolved around this sort of piece of technology, again, created created in the West. Um, so yeah, here, these are just a couple of examples, but there are so many others. I think it's important to understand, and I think we'll see this increasingly, that the technology dimension is folded in seamlessly to people's real lives. And so I, you know, I hope that we can find those human dimensions of these stories more easily, because increasingly, we're not going to be relating to technology through screens and through our phones and so on, but simply through the course of living. And, you know, that's an important dimension to the authoritarian technology story that hopefully, you know, we can Absolutely. all explore. And I think it's a really important dimension to reflect and coverage as well. One of the reasons so much of this works is because it's terribly convenient. And we actually just ran a story about social credit system in China and how, you know, while it has been painted as this Orwellian, awful, scary thing, plenty of Chinese are finding it incredibly convenient and comfortable. So th like that's another perspective that is really important to take into account. You never know, but it's very unlikely that our society will go back to being analog. You're right. I think the, the trajectory that we're on now is that we're going to lose the devices and the digital will become you know, it will be just life. And yeah, I've sort of realized recently that even that description, digital authoritarianism, at some point, it's just going to be authoritarianism, and it's going to be different from the authoritarianism we've known before. All the more reason to have the great sort of uh, work you and your colleagues are doing available to audiences. Well, absolutely. I, I, will, <laughs> I will take that plug. <laughs> So before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Natalia, what are you reading these days? 
I'm probably not allowed to do this because I know he was on your podcast, but I thought Peter Pomerantz's book was excellent. <laughs> and I'm also reading our newsletter, Coda Stories newsletter, especially the authoritarian tech newsletter. It's an easy sign up on the website, codastory.com. And I think you will be surprised by the range of things that it covers. This week, for example, it's about authoritarianism and hip hop. And Shanti, what are you reading? Um, well, I actually did read that newsletter, and I thought that was fascinating. So I will recommend that. Um, I, I'm also reading a book called Antisocial Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy by Shiva Vaidyanathan, who's a professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, and he's long been a keen observer of the social and political dimensions of technology. This latest book of his is an examination of Facebook's origins and its subsequent growth as a company that preaches the power of connectivity to change lives for the better, even as the more troubling dimensions of its effect on political processes might go relatively underexamined. He does come to a number of unsettling conclusions that, in my view, might also be applied more broadly to the social media space. One of which is that even as such platforms can be used for democratic change and political reform and positive things, um, these positive aspects perhaps prevent the company decision makers from truly interrogating the effect that they have on politics around the world, much less the underlying business model which normalizes aspects of surveillance and monetizes attention. So I do think it's a timely book and it's really worth chewing over. And I'm reading um, an excellent report produced by Globsec, which is a Bratislava-based organization. It's their Global Trends 2019 report titled Central and Eastern Europe 30 Years After the Fall of the Iron Curtain. And they surveyed thousands of people across uh, countries of Central and Eastern Europe, asking them questions about how they're perceiving the changes uh, 30 years since the fall of the wall. And some of the findings are quite surprising. Um, for example, just to give some top-order findings, support for the European Union is increasing across the whole region despite rising Eurosceptic political forces in some countries. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people who are surveyed in this report think that the work of media and NGOs are important for the democratic societies. Again, this despite some of the uglier turns that have revealed themselves in a number of countries in the region for civil society and media. And I would also note that as part of the findings, they found that not everyone would like to see their country positioned in the West. In the Visegrad Four, for example, around half would prefer that their country remain somewhere in between East and West to get, quote, the best of both worlds. So I think it's something for all of us to reflect on where these regions are that 30 years ago we expected to be on a, a linear track. And I think it's a reminder that we can't just set ourselves on autopilot, but we have to work hard to defend democratic rights and values in places where we thought they might have a much smoother course. So unfortunately, we run out of time today, but I uh, just wanted to thank you, Natalia, for being such a great guest and for raising such important issues on the uh, podcast. It's been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topics we discussed today, we recommend visiting Coda Story's website, codastory.com, where you can check out their channels focused on disinformation, authoritarian tech, and more. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today, and we'll be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. 
Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalapal with Christopher Walker and Natalia Antalava. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on authoritarian technology and disinformation and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.